Isaiah, in chapter 6. Isaiah 6, and if you would just follow along, I'll be reading the first eight verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. One cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. He laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. We pray our Lord to bless the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we'll pause again in our worship hour to speak to you from our hearts, confessing our inability to understand and to know, to retrieve, to, to keep that which is before, save you, your spirit, work in us a work of grace. We, Father, come with minds filled with other things and activities going on around us and, and distractions being very easy, plus our old sinful nature. And so the word itself may at times seem just like words, but it is not. It is your word. And so may we not only cherish it and love it and bury it within our hearts, but may we uh, seek, Father, to allow your spirit to bring application for your glory. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, by all accounts, it is a very festive time of the year. The music, you know, on the radios and every place else, it's holiday music. Actually, today in Philadelphia, we've got a big parade, and they're going to have it for all of the festivities, you know, for all of the Christmas and, and uh, uh, well, I'm not going to go into the rest of them, but you understand all of those, you know. We drive by in our neighborhoods and they're filled with an assortment of colored figurines, you know, the plastic blow-up ones or the ones that are filled with air and that are laying down during the day. And some nativity scenes with figures that are kind of faded with the sun brought out every year, Santa Clauses of various sizes, snowmen, go into the grocery store or actually any store and 
you know, I, I doubt if any of the people who work there know the word Merry Christmas. It's just like Happy Holidays, you know, or something like that. And when you say Merry Christmas to them, they're a little bit on the shock side that you even have such a, uh, an idea. But it is festive, and that's all that really matters, isn't it? And I'm not a Grinch. I'm, I don't mind the Christmas festivities, but it just seems that there's times when we've really kind of forgotten stuff. Everybody says Merry Christmas, but, well, not really anymore. Actually, at the Manila Airport a number of years ago, the workers in the Manila Airport were forbidden to say Merry Christmas because there's a conscious, they start Christmas in the Philippines at around the end of September. But, uh, no, truly. But when you say Merry Christmas, it's like they're asking for something. So they didn't want to make people coming into the country think that they were obligated to give a gift to the people who were saying Merry Christmas. So they forbid them from saying Merry Christmas. But correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that we as a nation, and oftentimes the majority of the churches or we within the church, have forgotten the majesty and the wonder of the season. It just seems to be lost, blended into a lot of the stuff that's, again, it's fine and it's exciting and get families together and all of that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. You saw the phrases and oftentimes the little bumper stickers put Christ back in Christmas, often repeated. We could say put Christ back in Easter or, you know, put Christ. But it's really put Christ in every single day because the wonder, the majesty, the marvel of what initiated within that time of, or this time of the year, uh, initiated long before within the prophecies that came about in God's uh, provision. Um, every day it seems that God is pushed aside and he's replaced with the God of man's own liking of his own creation, of his own particular situation. As a result, we're on the brink of something that man has never experienced. I think we're on the brink of tragedy. And we wonder, why is it happening? Why are things just falling apart when we just have drifted away? Have drifted away. Our scripture reading today begins with the mention of the death of King Uzziah a very popular king, a very famous king within Judah, the southern nation. He began at the rule of, of, of the kingship at 16. Yow. Uh, and guided by the Lord, he ruled for 52 years. Amazing. Uh, for the most part, uh, the scripture, as you look through Uzziah's time, uh, he was a favorable king because he walked in the steps of his father David. In other words, it was, it was a good indication he was doing the right thing and things that were there. However, in the book of Second Chronicles, it tells us that Uzziah wandered as time went on. I read, But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God, and he went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Things were going great, fantastic, but pride snuck in as things were going great and fantastic, you know. Uh, it's no wonder George Washington says, you know, I don't want the position, you know, the kingship, but any, well, let's limit terms and, 
I think we're all good for limiting terms anyways, but we see how pride comes in and destroys. The result was as he went in to do the offering of a priest, which no man is allowed to do, and especially the king, and God struck him with leprosy. Boom. And so he spent the rest of his days isolated as a leper ought um, freed from those responsibilities. Uzziah had lost the wonder and the majesty of God. There was no fear of the Lord in his heart. He forgot the one that initially set him up and how he had ruled and reigned under his leadership. Because of this, actually prior to the book of Isaiah, but um, because of this, trouble came into Judah. The people could feel the leadership had fallen away, and, and all of a sudden trouble uh, ensues, and there's some uh, other uh, uh, movement of people to be in charge and things like that, but it was chaos. And that's really in the book of Isaiah, these chapters that lead up. He's talking about the trials that are coming. And uh, it wasn't a pleasant position for Isaiah to be in, but he says, I'm going to preach to you, Judah, because things are a mess. And, and he had no confidence that it was going to turn them around, that there would be change. He saw this, and he also saw our text. He saw something beyond the hardship of what was taking place in his own country. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I forgot to look out up, I even think that Uzziah was a relative of, of, of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, there was some personal connection. So he was often within the palace to be with him. The opening words of that chapter, again, in the year that King Uzziah died, and I'm sure that was something that Isaiah felt close to him. He says, I saw also, also, the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood seraphims, each one with six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Beyond the chaos that threatened the land, Isaiah saw a vision of order, of sovereignty, of, of rule. He says he saw God in charge, ruling over the affairs of the earth, and, and that had to bring him to a place of great comfort. Things are falling apart all around us, but Isaiah says, I see one who is in charge. As it was then, so it is in our world today. When the name of God is brought up to some who are willing to listen or accept, well, he's somebody he's distant. Uh, he's, he's just kind of a, a figure of, of speech or a figure of somebody's imagination. He's mysterious. He's limited. And he really has nothing to do with the affairs of men. We're really on our own. Mankind has to do it as mankind has to do it. So he wasn't really there. Many will say that since God can't be seen with human eyes, then probably he doesn't even exist. 
In this passage, however, like many others, especially within the Old Testament, speak of God's not only his existence, but his viability as being the reality of God. Isaiah had the opportunity to look beyond the visible realms to the invisible, perfectly open in this vision to see that which no others had seen and brought to his heart's attention, the invisible majesty of our God. He saw God sitting upon the throne, a symbol of authority, not going out and washing his car or mowing the lawn or or doing some busy work in life, but he's sitting in a position of responsibility, orchestrating all that is before him, sitting upon his throne, the symbol of sovereign authority in charge of everything in heaven and on earth. We sing the beautiful hymn, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the Ancient of Days, Almighty, Victorious, Thy great name we praise. This world is not and cannot come to such an understanding as it stumbles blindly along, thinking it's ruled by man, uh, man, the, the, the primost of all of the animal kingdom. The next generation is told, well, you must save the planet. You must rescue us from all of these evils and let's go out and rage of our voices and bring this planet back into shape. But Isaiah saw sitting upon the throne in full sovereignty over the world and beyond the world. No problem whatsoever. But more than that, God was encircled with the highest of heavenly beings, the seraphim, the burning ones, brighter than the sun. And they go upon his throne and they they, they, they're evidence of the majesty of this one that they encircle. Our text says that they had three pairs of wings. It says with two they covered their faces. They are unworthy to look, nor could they look. They are unworthy to look upon the holiness of this God. It says with two they covered his feet. Well, in reality, they're really covering their bodies from, from, uh, from the necks all the way down and covering them because they indeed are unworthy in reverence to be there in front of him. And then with two wings they flew, um, a symbol of their continual activity, in service, in reverence, in honor to this one who has created all things and sustains all things. But next, he, the prophet says about these beings, he hears them, exalt the greatness of God, and they're crying one to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. This thrice repeated holy is a proclamation of him, the holiness of our God. That's kind of an interesting word, isn't it? When we use it in the context of of earthly beings, we usually think of somebody in the clergy, you know, Somebody with all types of regalia, and he says, he's a holy man, you know. He's a holy man. He's a holy man. And, and yet, you know, they look around, and their faces are almost like there's not a speck of joy in their life. You know, they're walking, you know. And, and yet, that's not our God. This beautiful picture of there is bound within the word holy. It's an old English word that means whole 
or complete. And that's something we strive for in life. We, we'd love to be uh, in, in, in all in, all in place, uh, all put together, complete in life. And we want this or we do this in order to be like that. But this is the epitome of our God. He is perfect, lacking nothing. He is whole. And that's hard for us to imagine as incomplete beings as we are. But that's what the angels are singing. But the seraphim also declare that God's glory is obvious elsewhere. The whole earth is full of his glory. You remember we touched on this when we looked at Psalm 19. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. And, and, and it, that's one aspect of it. But they understand the beauty of this. You know, when we think about our universe and its perfect order and grandeur, man falls upon his face and fails to understand these truths, these principles. The universe is exactly vast. Astronomers would even say within our own galaxy, which is difficult to measure and understand, that is, a, that is approximately 300,000 light years across, just the Milky Way galaxy upon which we are residing. That means if you are traveling at 11 million miles a minute, it would take you 300,000 years to cross it. You know, how to fathom that. And that's one of, of, of many of that size. And out in that space out there, there's, there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands, even greater in size to just our little galaxy. And then we take it even on the other side of it. We turn to the most, most minutest form of matter, our atoms, tiny electrons and neutrons and protons in each a little miniature universe and all bound within us even to the details of our hearing and our eyesight and our breathing and our hearts, the, the blood vessels, everything that goes on through us, each operating in perfect order. And we say perfect, well, until we really enter into this world and then we find, well, we got to find another doctor's appointment because part of our little universe is falling apart. But that's one thing that we're promised. One day we'll be out of this and we'll have a glorious body awaiting us. The seraphim declare the whole earth is full of his glory. And they say that because it's perfectly true. The universe all around in perfect order. Now, verse 4, the prophet says, And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. The very foundations of the temple shake when those words come out, proclaiming the holiness of our God. The full meaning of this hits, as you'd look in John 12, the apostle John speaking on the matters in the later parts of Isaiah 6 here. And he speaks of this and says in John 12, These things saith Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. The one whom Isaiah saw was none other than the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Who is upon the throne that they are saying, holy, 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 but it is our Jesus, the holiest of holies, the majesty of all of the universe, proclaiming his glory. None other than Jesus, the very one. All power is in heaven and on earth is given unto me, he says. How, how far is that? How far is all power? All power given unto me, all authority given unto me. But the vision of this majesty of Jesus reveals to Isaiah what he sees in himself. <laughs> you know, when we, we, we think we're all set and we think we've got it right and we're all put together and, and we go forth and then all of a sudden somebody points out, yeah, but your sock doesn't match your shoes or, you know, you, you didn't shave over here close enough or something like that. And they thought, ah, well, what happens when my innermost of who I am is compared to this perfect, perfect, perfect holy God. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah perceives the majesty of God. And what does he say? I recognize that, but boy, I see myself. Ah, disaster. Disaster. I doubt if Isaiah had ever thought of himself quite like that before. But in truth, when we see ourselves in the likeness of the grace of God, isn't that us? Who am I to claim this? Who am I to do this? Who am I to demand this? I am unworthy. From the very core of my being, from the soles of my feet to the top of my head, there's nothing good in me, and there still remains nothing good in me. Only that which was imputed to us in the righteousness of Christ. He says, I am a man polluted with unclean lips. The Bible often talks about lips as the, the source of uncleanness, the lips, the mouth. But the reality is that takes us to the whole body, and we've talked about that before. Jesus said, Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth that is defiled a man. In other words, where is the source of these things? was born within the heart. The defiling of man is born within there. We just hear the words that come out. You know, we, we've talked about that in James, you know, talked about the evils of the words and the, the power and the strength within those, how disastrous they can be. So Jesus says, no, it's bound not within the lips or the tongue, but he says it's bound within the heart. It's not what you eat or what you wear, but what you are that defiles. It comes out of a man. Out of the heart comes murders and adulteries and fornications and jealousies and envies. That's what Isaiah recognized of himself. The prophet Isaiah, the apostle Paul, all come to the same conclusion. And who are we? You think we're better than that? The majesty of God lays before us the, the worthiness of this one. And how are we in comparison to that? So now notice what he says. Woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, 
I'm dumbstruck. What do, what do I say? You know, here's, here, here's the seraphim surrounding his throne, constantly honoring him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and the seraphim say that? Who am I? How can I say anything? I'm not worthy to be saying holy, holy, holy. I believe there's a moment of fear and a sense of failure, a cry of despair that come out of the wholeness of Isaiah as he sees these beautiful pictures before him. Pause here just for a second and say if you feel that way today, you should. If you feel today that you're unworthy, that's right. It's proper. Because that's the place that we are as we come to this this, this, this house of prayer, this place of worship. Come feel entitled, you know, demanding, thinking that I am something when I'm not. But by the grace of God, we have the, not only the ability, but he's placed within us through Christ the desire to come and to worship him and to honor him in thought, word, and deed. So thank him for that. For God never uses anybody without first bringing that person into the awareness of his unworthiness, of his inability. And once we get to that stage, it's powerful. A lesson that runs all through scripture is that nothing keeps us from being used by God more than pride and self-sufficiency. Here's Saul, granted this privilege of being the king And all of a sudden, Saul finds himself in a position of pride and self-sufficiency. All through scripture, the men who are even used of God, and all of a sudden find themselves falling because of such. But when Isaiah saw the majesty and the glory of God and the effectiveness of his God, there came a burning in his heart and a desire to be used by him to have a part of that glorious work. He wants to. He understands his position before him. He understands the nation that's around him and what's going on. He wants to be used by that. There's no greater hunger than a hunger to be used by God. But when Isaiah became awareness of that hunger, he also became awareness of his not being fit to be used. Because he would mess it up if he tried. (laughs) He would mess it up because he is unworthy. It's not a pleasant way to feel, but it's very helpful to feel that way. And when you've arised, pride finds its source in all of human evil. It becomes the source of all failures. All of the agony of life that flows from the feeling that we deserve more. We deserve something better. I truly have to get bigger and better and more noted than others. Yet the Bible speaks clearly that pride is the source of all evil. And humility, on the other hand, becomes the source of all virtue. It's the keynote. It focuses, it's the door that opens up our place of service unto our God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount parallels what Isaiah says, and blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt ones. They see themselves as bankrupt, as having nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they 
are the, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God works continually in our lives to bring us to that same awareness. And I think sometimes we don't necessarily recognize it, but we say, why is God doing this to me? Why is this happening to me now? Why does it continue to happen? It could very well be that he brings you further and further and further to a place where I say, Lord, I am nothing. I've tried it this way. I've gone here and I've failed and I've failed and I've failed, but I keep trying. And he just said, I don't want you to try. I want you to trust in me. I want you to rely upon me. I want you to believe in me. Yes, God resists the proud, but what a contradiction this is to our spirit of age. <laughs> Think highly of yourself. Listen to the commercials. They get on the news and they'll, they'll give some credit for some teacher in the school and school system. And I understand the principle behind it, but they're saying, you can be anything you want if you try hard enough. You know, just go for it. Just do your best. Believe in yourself. That's all that it takes. And the whole world is filled with this philosophy that they indeed can believe in themselves. But scripture declares that God works in us to bring us to an end of ourselves, to bring me to a place. When you came to Christ, those of, us, those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you had to come to that place in your life. Says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I bring nothing to him. And that's the way it's got to be throughout life. That's the key to the door that lets me in, but it's the key to the door of life every single day. I can't say, I've made it. I've saved, and all of a sudden I can do all of this. I can't. I have to be there before him every single day. When Isaiah reaches this place, there's an immediate change. The words next in verse 6 is, then, after he says this, you know, after he makes this confession, he sees himself and he says, then, flew one of the seraphims unto me, remember service, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar and laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. You know, the glory of the gospel, forgiveness of the Old Testament and forgiveness in the New how beautiful. As wretched as humanity is, as, 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 as revolting as Judah was, as Israel was, there was opportunity. And he says, forgiveness is there, Isaiah, because you've seen it. And he takes the coal and he touches his lips. There's forgiveness bound and found within that. It speaks of the cost of redemption. The cost of forgiveness, it foresees the one who would come and lay his life down in order that forgiveness would be granted. <laughs> There's a, another glory in our gospel, hymn that we often sing by William Coper. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners purged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. The blood of Jesus, bound within this illustration that this coal cleansed not his lips, but born within his heart that he could provide such a message. What a change within his life. 
That's true not only in the beginning of the Christian life, but every day. You know, we need the forgiveness of sin. We need that because it continues to build upon us. Ephesians 1.7, Paul says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Never begin a day without thanking him for that which is laid before you, the opportunity to say, God, forgive me. And never close your day by not coming to him and saying, God, forgive me. Recognizing that the, the, the riches of his grace grant us such a forgiveness each and every day. Thought, word, and deed. How, how often we have failed to do such. Isaiah heard the phrase of the seraphim, and there was a thunderous song which shook the very foundations. But what did God hear? You know, the foundations of the building shake. But what did God hear? He heard a very faint and fearful cry of a guilty man. His conscience was terribly polluted. He cried even as David had written in the psalm, A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's Isaiah. His heart was broken. He had a contrite heart. And he comes before there. And that's all that God heard. That's all that God saw. I grant you forgiveness. The coal upon his lips cleaned him. And when God hears such a cry, immediately the, the seraph stop what they're doing in the worship with him. And they bring attention to that one who has such a need. The coal off the fire. Your sin is forgiven, your guilt is taken away. This is the great comforting word of the gospel, isn't it? This is the comforting word of the gospel. All too often I hear, you know, before we went to the Philippines, there was a fellow on a radio, and, and I, it caught my attention because he was talking about being in, in Manila at a, uh, a rally, and he says, we've got a big tent built up down there, and we get hundreds of people coming in there. And I ask, raise their hands. How many of you want to ask Jesus in your heart? And they all raise their hands, you know. And I've seen the tent. You know, it's, I doubt if it's there anymore. But I've seen it. And it's a circus, you know. How many of you want to receive Jesus, you know? Well, they're raising their hands. So I've got to raise my hand. There's no understanding of what takes place within the heart and the change that God brings. The, the comfort about the sins and the guilt taken away, washed away through the blood of Jesus. When you think about this, and it's a strange message. He says, and I heard the voice of him saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I. Send me. You think about the response that God gave, that Jesus spoke to the prophet at that time. He says, my sins have been forgiven, my lips are clean, my heart's clean. And, and he says, now, who's going to go? You know, up to this point, did he feel worthy of going? Hardly. He felt unworthy to do anything, even to speak in the presence of God. And yet he comes forth with great grace. The message Isaiah was given was one of judgment. <laughs> the picture was not pretty in Israel. God was saying, these people who have so resisted my word have become so indifferent to me, the only thing that will wake them in is take them into captivity with Babylon, and then they'll wake up, and they were. And Isaiah had to watch his nation, his people, 
dragged away as slaves into Babylon for 70 years. It allowed the land to become desolate and lives to be changed. But you know, that was not a result of God's anger. Judgment isn't a result of God's anger here. It's a result of God's mercy. They didn't deserve to be taken into Babylon. They deserved to be wiped off the face of the earth because of an indifference towards the word and an indifference towards him. Who do they think they are? What the prophets have been saying. Read, read through the prophets. What is their message? Repent, repent, repent. And they thumb their nose at him. They didn't believe. They didn't hold to the words that were there often quoted within the Old Testament, the stubbornness of men who refused to listen to his revelation, the mercy of God and the grace of God stands true. Our message today is the same. Mercy and grace. God will not give you that which you deserve, but he will give you that which you don't deserve. He has every right and every privilege of his as a holy God to bring judgment. The majesty and the greatness of our God is only available when we recognize our unworthiness. And all that you have been and all that you are and all that you hope to be is nothing but that which he's given. As we come to Christmas, who is this babe in the manger? You know, is surrounded by little chubby-cheeked you know, angels fluttering around like that and little kids and some animals that come in like that. And we've taken the majesty and the holiness of God and we've reduced it to something so simplistic that people say this is a fairy tale. It has nothing to do with, oh, with my soul. It has nothing to do with eternity. Oh, but it does. And somebody says, well, we go to Easter, we'll jump to Easter. And yeah, and then we have the bunny rabbits and everything else that goes along with that. The beauty of what Isaiah sees here brings us to a place of who we are. Can we say, here I am, Lord, send me? Is my heart in such a place today? Do do I desire it to be in such a place that I recognize what Jesus has done and I I love him so for that? Lord, whatever, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Wherever you want me to go, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to say, I'll say it. Because of, of what was given in this illustrative picture of Isaiah coming unto him, it's the same one that we come to today. It's the same one. The angels coming there to the, to the, uh, to the shepherds in the fields, and, and they were just elated with what was taking place, and the shepherds were, ah, what's going on, you know? You know uh, they saw a fulfillment of a prophecy But indeed, did they truly understand the majesty of what had taken place? Emmanuel, God becomes man. Couldn't you understand that? Do do we comprehend it? This is not the Greeks. We go to Mount Olympus and we see somebody up there with this big thing and and all this other kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with that. This is the eternal God in man coming for us. Never lose hold of this beautiful truth. What Isaiah has provided for us was provided for generations previous to us. And until Jesus comes, it'll be available. Honor the majesty of the Lord. Stand in awe of him. Never disrespect who he is. Allow this Christmas time to be a time of joy in him. Let's pray.
Father, as we pause, we're mindful of the simple words that we say and words that are not even sufficient in and of of themselves. Yet you have preserved your word, even by the pen of Isaiah or John or Paul or others, in order that we might receive uh, your revelation, your written revelation. And as your spirit illumines us, that we might come to understand the greatness and the majesty of your love for us in that you sent your only begotten son to come in human form in order that we might be redeemed. Worthless sinners who, who had nothing to do with you, who cared nothing whatsoever about you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Father, cause us to be rejoicing within our hearts for this beautiful uh, picture that's provided for us today, the incarnation, the coming of the God-man, our Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.